his name is Bond, James Bond. And here, in his explosive film debut, Ian Fleming's immortal action hero blazes through one of his most spectacular adventures. Sean Connery embodies the suave yet lethal cool of Agent 007 as he battles the mysterious Dr. No, a scientific genius bent on destroying the US space program. Making its premiere on the 5th of October 1962 in London and opening in the USA several months later on the 8th of May 1963, Dr. No is the first James Bond film and cost $1 million and made $59.5 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Sean Connery and directed by Terence Young, the vital statistics are Conquests 3, Martinis 2, Kills 5, and Bond James Bonds 1. Back in 1963, Variety said, Dr. No is the first screen adventure of Ian Fleming's hard-hitting, fearless, girl-loving secret agent 007, James Bond, is an entertaining piece of tongue-in-cheek action hokum. Sean Connery excellently puts, puts over a cool, fearless, on-the-ball, fictional secret service guy. Terence Young directs with a pace which only occasionally lacks. I'm your host, James Page, from MI6HQ.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. And for the Dr. No episode of James Bond and Friends Debrief, I'm joined by Phil Namil Jr., Natalie Bruchensky, and Ben Williams. First category is the one with, and this is the motif that you can hang your hat on for this film, whether it's like what you'd put on a minimalist poster or the one thing that you, when you close your eyes, you see or hear. What is the one with? Surely you have to say the one with Ursula Andress coming out of the water in the white bikini. <laughs> Surely. Yeah. Or is yeah, that just me I being think, sexist when, again? No, not at all. I, I, I had several <laughs> of these kind of key moments within the film that I was thinking of, like the, the spider was also a kind of a kind of a key moment for me. And but it's kind of a bit like you could you do the poster like a Botticelli, wouldn't you, Natalie? Yeah, yeah, actually, yes, I would. Uh, clamshell, flowing hair, mm-hmm. except, no, she wasn't, um, what was she fis- fishing for? It was like clams, wasn't it? It was Con- or rocks. Conch shells. shells. Conch shells, that's what it was. Yes, yeah. of course. A big conch shell. Mm. Strategically placed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it, yeah, to me that is sort of legendary. The only other thing I would say uh, about Dr. No in terms of iconic is Dr. No's first line to Bond, which is just $1 million. <laughs> and I think, right. I think <laughs> yeah. due to the, the Austin Powers film subsequently uh, and the, the Dr. Evil kind of character, that, that um, – line delivery of one million dollars is just so classic bond villain you know super villain yeah uh, mm. to the point of to the point of loving parody so much over the years so that they're, they're the two things that i would say are you know super iconic about this film apart from you know sean connery himself i suppose yeah i i guess i would have said um connery connery's kind of swag almost creates the the style of the film in a, in a sense, you know, um, get casting Connery was like that key thing. But now that I'm thinking, uh, cause that's what I was going to say. I was going to say sort of like overarchingly it's a, it's a style driven, it, it feels a stylish film. Um, mm. but if I had to kind of make a minimalist poster, I would probably do like the great behind dent in Dr. Mm. Leia, but, Put the put the tarantula in the in the web of it, if that makes sense. 
All right. So those two things and then sort of this idea that is bond is being is stepping on the stepping on the the, the web of dr no and he's being oh. uh, alerted very good phil well i'll i'll say contractual obligations and legal language be damned this is the one with monty norman <laughs> I mean, it's the only one can really make that claim, even though his name is on every movie. Um, I don't know what the poster would look like. Sorry, but uh, I think it gives it a weird character, a weird, a weird sort of uh, gestational bond energy that that no other film has because the, the pieces start to come together immediately after Doctor No. And I, I love the fits and starts and the birthing process of Doctor No. So, in a weird way, as as derided as he often is i think monty norman is part of that monty norman and his and his soundtrack that wouldn't possibly fit any other bond film or other film don't mm, fair um <laughs> that's some good picks there good picks um so that's the iconic moment but we've touched on some of these the bond cocktail these are the ingredients that tabloid journalists like throw together as like this is your construction kit of a james bond film we've got teaser titles plot women villains allies bond himself action locations dialogue and style which of these elements to you is important in this film is a twist or is somehow unique to this particular outing and it could be good or bad for good or bad reasons who would like to pick an element and sure. why and it can be positive or negative sure i'll go with location uh out of the gate more than any uh newsreel interview of ian fleming more than any book plot uh having jamaica be bond's first on-screen playground sort of weds that spot to the character on a primal level that even though he doesn't as a character return to jamaica for 59 years it, he's they're they're part and parcel with each other and i think that's something that doesn't get enough sort of like attention. Like if, if they, if this crew picture this crew adapting Casino Royale in 1962, it would be a rather stage bound affair. And it might look something more like an mm. OSS movie where it's shot in like Europe or whatnot. But ha I think having like jumping ahead to the, like, what is it? The fifth novel, I think, or sixth, um, having it be Jamaica, be the inaugural launch pad for the cinematic bond reverberates through the franchise in in a way that I don't even think they could have predicted, but I think it's so essential to the successful launch of the character. Hmm. Is that what you're looking uh, for? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was going to say, Phil, it's like, was J Jamaica wasn't that widely used in Western films prior to Dr. No, was it? That's a good point. I'm not sure if it, if it was, but it does in, in the books that I've read about sort of Fleming's relationship with Jamaica, it, it seemed to be sort of like the, the wealthy elite's secret. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, they would buy that land and, and bought it for kind of reasonably uh, up until, until uh, Jamaica sort of got its independence from the UK. Um, yeah, it's, it does sort of put it on the map in a significant way. And then there's weird meta ways that that, that, that impacts it. Like, you know, Blackwell, Chris Blackwell being involved Right. In his production and and the, what he you know apocryphally did with the money from this film and starting Island mm -hmm. Records and all that stuff, I think that maybe this film did more for Jamaica than than can possibly be charted. Right, so much so they renamed the airport Ian Fleming Airport years later. I think for mm -hmm. them, it's the uh, Ian Fleming International Airport, uh, as I'm sure Phil will attest to uh, along with me, is that is a, is 
it's very generous to call it an international airport. Yeah, it's like Bristol Airport. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, I'll, I'll, day. <laughs> very dare you. If I can throw uh, some ice cubes in the cocktail shaker, um, uh-huh. I would like to posit that uh, – the Bond James Bond line, that iconic first delivery, mm. um, sets up just such a world of expectations for the entire franchise and is just like a piece of cinematic. You know, when Sean Connery died, that was the clip that everyone showed. Right. I mean, they showed many clips, but all of the packages had that clip. And something I, I, I'm sure you guys have discussed before, but something that really only kind of gelled in my mind in recent years was how much that line, you know, was on purpose uh, at the time because when you look at the scene as a whole, it's Bond asking Sylvia Trench her name and she says, Trench, Sylvia Trench. And so he's copying her. He's saying Bond, James Bond. So if they hadn't have written the script with Trench, Sylvia Trench, if she'd have just said Sylvia you know, or Sylvia Trench, could we have gotten James, James Bond? Or, you know, like it, it, it just mm-hmm. um, it makes me really excited to think about how maybe they wrote that, that introduction just fairly casually and then it became a thing, you know, and how right. delighted yes. you, the thing you were. I saw, Natalie, uh, online, which was the there is a thing that you can do in language, which is to say a word and sandwich it but basically between like the, a word is repeated sandwiched between another word and um you know there's a there's a, a video on this somewhere but it's basically it's that's how certain things can become really strongly embedded in our in our mind by this yeah. kind of um, like like difficult also, difficult lemon difficult yeah <laughs> <laughs> But, but essentially, yeah, that, that it's this kind of weird sandwiching effect that, you, I, stupidly, I can't think of any examples right now, but that is one of the prime ones that they, they often use is to say Bond, James Bond, to sure. keep it keep it in, in our, our consciousness. And, and I, it, I completely agree. It's really interesting, isn't it, that um, Ian Fleming chose the name James Bond because he, as I understand it, he wanted something fairly bland something mm-hmm. that, that might not be very memorable. And yet in doing, you know, that scene and in creating Bond, James Bond as the introduction, all of a sudden it's the most memorable name, you know. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how a, how a fairly blunt, un, unexciting name becomes filled with danger and promise of adventure. That's right. Well, it becomes an avatar. On. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's it's mostly due to what you're pointing out, Natalie, is that he is he's teasing a woman, he is mimicking her, he's flirting with her. So the the whatever the subconscious you know effect of the repetition is, what else is happening, which is maybe more impactful and then gets lost in the sands of time, is that it is loaded with sexual energy. Oh yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that certainly has to be a factor in, in in everyone sort of memorizing it. It does become kind of hollow over 25 films when they say it over and over and. And it's, you know, played for laughs and no time to die. But that first time he is, he is, they are sizing each other up like a, like a meal. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that, those three words are the distillation of that. And it's really very cool. It's, I- it's just saying that this person is super fucking comfortable in this situation and super confident and, you know, is, is the winner at the table, so to speak. Um, it's, 
it's it and makes over, sense that you would do that. <laughs> over a time when you could just get a man's card and then turn up at his house and he's conveniently not there. <laughs> break break so into his house. Break, break into, into his house. house. <laughs> so you can put on one of his shirts and play golf in the living room. <laughs> like, I mean, she, she, it does worry me about the security of one of Britain's top uh, eight. <laughs> if this was a Michael Douglas movie in 1987, the red flags are flying. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe May let her in. It's the 60s, you know. It's it's the 60s and uh, it's a time when beautiful women could just show up at your house and demand sexual favours. Uh, and would we all it like to say that? On the back of the card, it just says, <laughs> let her in, May. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> address and let her in. So you went for so you you were you went for dialogue out of the Bond cocktail then, Natalie. Is there any other standouts of this film? Well, um, yeah, in that category that make it make this make it stand out against the rest of the series a bit. In dialogue, you mean? Mm. I think I think the one million dollars that I've already already referred to, um, but I also think that there's a real charm when Ursula Andress comes out of the ocean. Honey Rider comes out of the ocean. She's polishing off her shells and she's singing and then Bond just starts singing along with her. Like that's a moment mm. that's so every time I watch it, I, I just am delighted that there's this, he doesn't approach Honey Rider in the same way that he approaches Sylvia Trench. As you said, you know, that's loaded with sexual energy. It's loaded with a very mature, this is a woman of the world. She knows what she wants. Whereas Honey Rider is so naive and she's almost like been birthed out of the ocean she's very um childlike without sounding creepy sure. she's just she's just very naive and young and inexperienced i guess born sexy yesterday sorry i said born sexy yesterday yes that's right except it's- except for the fact that the the joy of honey rider is bond realizing that she's not naive that she's actually very right. cluey and she's actually quite deadly if crossed. Uh, but in that moment, he's just, you know, he doesn't approach her with a, hey, babe, I'm a super spy. It's just I happen to mm. be another relaxed man just on the beach. Mm. Let's chat, you know. So hey, I, I always, and I get that song, the underneath the island, no, underneath the mango tree, mm. Mahani. Just occasionally it'll pop in my head when it's like a sunny mm-hmm. day outside or something. It's just that. that Thank for you, me, Monty Norman. Yes. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Backing up your point. Uh, but, yes, I, I, I think that, I, I think that um, that little interchange and that yeah. little moment of, of, of like, it's a, it was a non-threatening way. I mean, she's still threatened, obviously, but it's the most non-threatening way. So that intuition that he seems to have of how to approach different people in different scenarios, um, I think, mm. becomes part of the bond. I, I was like just talking about the dialogue. Natalie, and in that same scene when he said, and she says, uh, you know, what are you doing here looking for shells? And he says, no, I'm just looking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> almost, it's almost fourth wall crossing. Yes. You know, in a way. And it's also multi leveled. He's like, is he looking at her? Is he, is he uncovering a plot? Is he mm. talking directly to the audience? Mm. It's, you know, it's a really lovely line, and the delivery is really great. Mm. Um, some other ones that spring yeah. to mind are like the you know that's the Smith and Wesson you've had your six I think is yes. a, is one that's yes. often clipped out. Mm. Oh, that moment! Yes. 
thoroughly wrong. Yeah, that, that moment. Well, uh, te- technical problems aside, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it does exude. There's more more weaponry being identified by name <laughs> and yet being incorrect. But... <laughs> oh, can you yeah. explain that to me? Because I didn't know that. Yeah. So both, like, so uh, in, in in two major sequence scenes in the in the film, obviously Bond gets his Walther PPK <laughs> given to him. Uh, except it's a Warther PP because they didn't have a Warther PPK, so that's um, misnamed. And then um, when Dent shoots at Bond, or what he thinks is Bond in in Miss Tarot's um, cabin, um, he's he's got a what I, I think is a Colt 1911A1, which is like um, you know like the old army issue Colts, which is a seven shot gun. And it's not made, but well, I mean, Smith and Wesson have a derivative of it, but I guess what I'm saying is it's like it fires seven shots and it's not a Smith and Wesson. Uh-huh. So <laughs> at the same time, it is a very cool line yes. for people yeah. who weren't going to pour over the, the minutiae well, of it. Or- you know, and Bond works for MI7 as well, if you listen carefully, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, the line that always stuck out to me as being like, what the hell were they thinking when they wrote it was the, when he's in bed with Miss Tara and he goes, I'm feeling Italian and musical. Let's go to the mountain. <laughs> grill. It's like, <laughs> since when has Bond felt Italian and musical? It's like, yeah, he famously I, I think hates that back. Yeah. <laughs> I think when Idris Elba does his standalone one-off, uh, I'd like <laughs> to see him bring that, bring that line back. <laughs> All right, so we've had um, lo- locations and dialogue. Ben, what do you? So I, I have a feeling I, I know what you're going to go with, but which which one of the Bond cocktails are you going to go for? Um, well, I'm kind of torn between sort of style and Bond because I think in this they they kind of play off one another, but this is really Connery um, defining the cinematic Bond at this point. We've had the literary Bond. We have an idea of how he dresses and what he looks like. Um, and, and Fleming does give us that, but really it's in the cinematic universe that we really start to see um, one, an in, a proper interpretation of Bond. And by that, I mean, like, if you're reading a book, it's always kind of a little subjective. You're always going to project who you see onto it. Here we're having a, a, a proper kind of, um, solidified character and what Connery brings to that with his kind of um, you know darkness and his kind of charm you know that he's he, he definitely has that sort of prowling bar- barracuda feel about him but also that he's you know been dressed in um, you know Anthony Sinclair and uh, you know the the uh, the conduit cut suit and the cocktail cuffs shirts and everything that he wears sort of uh, um, encap- like it start, starts to define and encapsulate that character um, at the same time as Connery's performance does. Um, and so you get this kind of beautiful melding of, um, of the two things. Uh, you could have put Cary Grant in the same suit, but he wouldn't have had necessarily the menace, um, mm. you know. And it, it it's it's really about that actor in that particular 
environment and style and how he has been um, shaped into it. Uh, so I, I think that that's one of the and, and it lays the groundwork for everything we're going to to see um, in the in the in the series. So. Also, some really high waisted trousers. Just want to point that out. <laughs> Just some back. super super high waisted pants. Uh, Simon Cowell tried to bring them back. It didn't work. <laughs> no, it didn't. But, you know, they weren't technically speaking. They're sitting on your waist. It's now the you know so the waistband is actually around your waist. Um, nowadays, the trend is so much to kind of bring that waistband down to the hip that so much changes about a garment. You know, mm. um, so it does look odd looking back at it, but it, it it's also kind of a realization that you know, like to me when I look at Connery suits in Doctor No, they seem um, sort of qu- quite roomy by comparison to something that Craig would wear oh, God. but at the time they were the they were the slimline suits they were you know they were the ones with the cinching and the you know the hourglass silhouette yeah it's quite interesting Daniel Craig is like busting out of those Tom Ford suits like they're barely constraining oh, yeah. his muscles I know it's like they should be kind of like a almost like a stretchy material to accommodate him, <laughs> allowing him to stay. I think that was a given that somebody was going to pick Bond for Dr. No, but thank you for a unique take on it, Ben. <laughs> All right. So underappreciated element, what thing, big or very, 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 very small, do you love about this film that you want to bring to people's attention that may not be obvious? This is a little trickier. I love, if I can burst in, I love the little in-joke in Dr. No's fantastic, I mean, first of all, like Dr. No's lair. It, it, it's just mwah, just the whole concept of a villain's lair I think is is created with Dr. No's underground fish tank, you know, palace. Uh, but there's this lovely in-joke when they're going up to dinner of the um, Duke of Wellington painting, I think it is. Uh, yeah. There's a, a no. It's a Goya, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll double check the the artwork. But yes, yeah, so there's this painting that at the time, like now, you watch it, or the casual viewer will watch it, and Bond sort of stops and looks at this painting and does a bit of a double take. And it's actually an in joke because at the time, uh, the that painting had been stolen from the British Museum or the British Art gallery national portrait gallery mm-hmm. one of those one of those places yeah. and so the the idea is they they put in a current topical joke about dr no is so you know evil and clever and scheming that he has taken this painting and this is where it's turned up and i can imagine 1962 crowds really particularly british ones i guess just being like look he's got the painting he's got the painting uh <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just think that's a lovely little tidbit because, of course, topical jokes, you know, get get forgotten. Uh, and so it was many it was many years into being a Bond fan that I read up on that. And uh, so now every time yeah. I see, I'm quite delighted at this little 1962 yeah. specific in joke. <laughs> yeah, there's there's been topical jokes in the series that haven't aged well, um, that need a lot of explaining for cultural context now. But I think that one still stands up. Um, Fun and fact, Ken Adam painted that. Yeah. 
Ken, and that's a movie uh, on its own about that, yeah. about that thing. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Sam Mendes would lean into that in Skyfall. So he, he brought back the villain stolen an inspector stolen painting uh, motif again, but good shout out. Um, ben or Phil underappreciated element or micro moment. Uh, I can go if Ben wants to stall for time. Uh, <laughs> underappreciated <laughs> element. You read my mind. <laughs> I could read the silence. Pregnant silence. Um, underappreciated element. First name Monty, last name Norman. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what, I, what I love about Dr. No and sort of gets lost in the, in the uh, binge watch marathon, which Bond movie should I start with kind of, uh, you know, moment that we're in uh cinematically with with fans is that if you sit down and watch this movie you're watching the cinematic james bond be created in front of you one scene at a time i i don't i don't know why i hang on to that but like i i i sit there and i think that five minutes before you've had your six that moment didn't exist in the universe you know what i mean Mm. and and now it and you're watching them create this history 24 frames a second uh a moment at a time and the the myriad things that could have gone wrong that they could have just taken a different turn on and didn't. Um, to me, you're there's, there's an excitement to watching them figure it out as they go. Cause certainly some stuff doesn't stay and some stuff kind of gets, you know, like left on the side of the road as the film goes on. But the idea that you're watching it get created. Uh, and I don't think and somebody's going to like show up and tell me I'm wrong, but I, I, I don't think there's another film that can claim the legacy of Dr. No in terms of a 60 year franchise uh, produced in house by, by a single company, you know, with various partners over the years, but the, the Rosetta stone of Dr. No, I think is the underappreciated right. element. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I almost feel like that's sort of what I was meaning when I spoke about bond before it's yeah. this you, you're literally watching this evolution of this this character and, and every choice that not just the not just the choice of um the producers picking out the production designer or casting it or, or, or the monty norman music <laughs> or whatever it might be but it's just all of these choices that bring together like would would Doctor No have 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 been the same film without Ken Adam? Uh, I don't think it it yeah. would have been. And you're you're creating this. It's all of these little elements that come together that create something that's bigger than the sum of its yeah. parts. Really. And I, I, leaning into that, Ben, uh, feel your idea of like they were kind of making it up as they went along and working it out. I mean, Ken Adam hadn't done batshit crazy sets in a film prior to Doctor No. Wow. Right. Um, yeah. You Peter know what Hunt's I mean? So, yeah, Peter Hunt's it's all exactly. stuff, and he'd done some uh, very sort of standard set design stuff. Um, and it's kind of this weird, like, um, it's this weird marrying of um, expressionism right. and modernism. and low budget. You know, yeah. well, not yeah. having yeah. the money created that. The, the thing that yeah. you mentioned, the iconic ceiling grid, right? I mean, that was just because they right. ran out of money for the set. I mean, that's... And then reusing the, uh, you know, the um, the hotel set as as dense office right. later on, just redressing it slightly. And, right. you know, it's, it, it's sort of weird to sort of think that, and I think this comes back to, I wanted to say this when Phil was talking about Jamaica, 
it's what gives this film so much production value. Because if it was just contained within Pinewood or, say, France or, you know, right. with a couple of exteriors or whatever, um, it, it just comes off the screen um, and it feel and it, and it creates the one thing that I think at the time Bond really was, which was escapism. Mm. Um, and, and that feeling of being able to see something that you would never be able to see in, in, in Phil's case with um, Laughing Waters, um, still guarded by a dog. Yep. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so it, it's kind of, it is kind of, there is that kind of exoticism that, that comes with it. Um, and I completely agree, agree with Phil saying that like it had to be Jamaica and who knows where it could have gone if, if it didn't, but it's those confluence of all of those things, like the tailoring, um, the, the scripting, you know, the, the dialogue is, is fantastic. It's all of these, these little elements that come together to make it just this much richer, bigger film than it, mm. than it is. Mm. It, 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 it swipes by, you know, as like, oh, it's the small one and it's the, it's the one location and they don't have John Barry in full there yet. But, but to me, so many of the individual elements that Ben is pointing out, the only word I can use for them in terms of cinematic history is unprecedented. It, mm. It's all brand new, you know, budget or no budget. It's, it's, it's a collage of things that people hadn't seen on screen before. And I think, that there's something almost punk rock about that and, and, mm. and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree, Phil. It's, it's, it's kind of like a Bauhaus creative of like all of these different people coming in and giving their best at it. Right. You know, um, and it, it, it feels a bit more avant-garde because of that. It certainly feels like I can't, apart from maybe something like North by Northwest, I can't right. really think of anything that has a, a, a a stylistic kind of equivalent, but even that film isn't setting any kind of. It, you know, even North by Northwest leans into its 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 period. Mm -hmm. right. um, weirdly, I think I think Doctor No is one of the first films, maybe that 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 went for a bit of hyper realism. Mm. You know, yeah, this idea that like you you know you, you this guy's got this base on an island and it's huge and it's all cantilevered and weird and it. It's reality, but but more so. And I think Bond really is one of the the first, if not the first, um, sort of franchises or films to even even attempt doing that. Mm. That's a good point. Um, we've talked about. I've brought this idea up before when we talk about Majesty's Secret Service, which is I'd love to re-edit that film in the order they shot it, so that you could see Lazenby's progress in making a film. <laughs> Right from yeah. the first scene he did all the way through to the end to see to see if his performance improves or whether it was just kind of random scene to scene. Now I wonder if you reorganize Doctor No into shot into the shot order, whether you would see creaky things at the beginning and it being polished at the end, or whether it would just be all over the place. Um, Is he just putting that button, bottom button at the beginning and he figures out how to button a suit later? <laughs> yeah. well, what I mean is in like the, in in the in the filmmaking, so the production design, yes. the performances, um, not right. so much the soundtrack because that was done done at the end, but the stuff they did on the hoof, um, mm -hmm. stitching it together in shooting order. Like, would you see it develop as it went along, or would it? Yeah, it might be one note. I don't know, but just throwing. It I feel there. like I feel like Connery's more naturalistic on location than he is in some of the sets. That's interesting. 
And I think some of his delivery is a little bit drier on set than it is on location. And they, and they did start shooting the film on location first, and then they went back to Pinewood to finish. Huh. Mm. Yeah. Just sweating his face off in those you know, When I think about him, you know, I think about him arriving at Dents and, and the difference between him kind of talking to him. He's very cool and calm in that scene when he's talking about the, the you know, the rocks and everything. And he, he, he has a certain menace to him, but he doesn't. There is a difference, almost a difference in character at points when he's, he just feels a little bit looser, I think. Um, and that's just my interpretation of it. I mm. could be wrong. All right, two speed rounds. Um, first up, uh, trivia. Um, a fact or tidbit about the film that you find interesting? Um, I don't know if you shot your bolt already on that, Natalie, um, with painting. <laughs> yeah, but, that probably covers that too. <laughs> right. Does anybody have any nuggets of oh, trivia? The thing, I have trivia. I don't know. If it's, go ahead, please. I was going to say that there's one thing. Isn't Quarrel, because I love Quarrel, the character of Quarrel. I love him so much and always hated the fact oh. that he died in the film. But isn't um, from uh, Live and Let Die, it's like his son is in Live and Let Die? Yes. Isn't yeah. that the yeah. That's like the continuity yeah. of the, they sort of pay tribute to yes. him that way? Yeah, absolutely. Quarrel Jr., um, yeah. So yes, that would be my favorite little tidbit too. That they, you know, they they call back to that, which throws a whole continuity issue up. But yeah, yeah of course. But Absolutely. still, <laughs> like um, my dad showed me a picture of you. And I think um, mine isn't really. I, I I thought about these bits of trivia that you know. The thing is, most of the time. These bits of trivia are things that you can read on the internet or like, oh, where did the Rolex come from? Or, you know, those sorts yeah. of things. And I wanted to kind of avoid sort of trivia that was obvious maybe or that you could you could like nitpick through. But I think my bit of trivia is basically that they made a tonal decision in this not to, to copy Fleming's um, irony, cynicism, mm his tongue-in-cheek quality that he had in the book, right? There's a giant squid in the book. There are centipedes sent to kill Bond. Um, you know, um, it's Dr. No is described as a sort of a, a Fu Manchu uh, worm wrapped in silver. <laughs> um, he's defeated by being buried in bird shit. Right. Um, you know, all of that kind of real... Um, it's 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 like I said before about that kind of hyper reality, but there's also a, a, a real sense of camp and a real sense of tongue in cheek that comes with mm. it. That they made a really deliberate choice in this movie to go, let's keep it sort of, you know, a little bit more down One to earth. Let's not let's it's not yeah. I mean, I just I'm sort of contradicting myself in a way because I said it's it, it is a hyper real film and it is, but. I just think it's interesting that they didn't try to make it campy or funny, right. which I think a lot of the, the following Bond um, copies, you, you know, with Matt Helm and and, and the like, would, right. would lean more into. Um, and I, I think that's almost like a piece of trivia because they obviously sat down at one point and discussed what the tone was going right. to be. And that's, that led 
don't forget Dr. No was a monkey as well at one point. Um, <laughs> but that's when you know when yeah. somebody hasn't read the books when they say that, oh, I wish they'd go back to the gritty realism of Fleming, right? Um, right. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's always been a bugbear of mine. <laughs> the, the, the giant squid and um, uh, poisoned peaches. Yes. Um, anyway, that's my, that's my trivia bit. Phil, trivia. do you have a nugget? Sure. Now, as, as Ben said, you, you read this stuff on the internet, and who knows if it's actually true, but um, what really fascinated me was reading that Jack Lord, at catering, he would fill his suit pockets with potato salad. Because he loved the he loved the potato salad so much, he he wanted it in his trailer. No, I'm that's not that's probably not true. I, I didn't vet that. Um, no, that's not true. Here's what I here's here's a good one. Um, sorry. sorry. Can I just say though? Can I just say I feel like you know if I was on a film set with delicious craft services, like I I would do that. I would I would hey, be stealing food. Can I, I mean, can I to be fair, he's wearing a big hat. He could just fill that up. Yeah. Put in there. <laughs> Um, Jack, I'm going to share something. I'm going to share something with you now that which Phil and I never actually put into practice, but we did talk about doing, which was to make up an outrageous uh, lie (laughs) about (laughs) a a trivia lie uh, and say it on one of the podcasts. And the other one, uh, either one of us who said it, would have to back the other one up and say, "Oh yeah, that's true." (laughs) (laughs) If it, if it. We may yet do that. So here's something I love. Dolores Keeter, who plays Mary Trueblood, uh, Strangway's mm. secretary, who I don't even know if she's named in the film, but Mary Trueblood is her name. And she, um, what I read is that Strangway's house was actually this woman's actual house. And so she's yes. filmed being killed in her own house and yeah. uh, never appeared on screen again. That's true. Wow. That is true. That I is love a, that. She that was just like, we got the house. And there's like such hustle in that, you know, can we use this house? Yes, but can I get a part in the movie? Have we got a part for you? And, uh, and she's, you know, cemented as like a a piece of film history. She made one film ever. And, uh, and that was it. She passed away. Broke her windows too. Yeah. Broke her windows for her troubles. Mm. Actually, do you know what, Phil? I always am delighted on these podcasts when I learned something that I didn't know and I didn't know that. Oh, so, yeah. um, thank you. Thank you, man. Welcome. Appreciate and it. she was married four times. Wow. <laughs> that part's true. I'm not sure what relevance that has. That's to not anything a, that's not a Jack Lord potato salad situation. That's no, a real but in those days. That's uh, in those days. That's the thing. Four times. All right. So, uh, Dr. No, First film often used as a benchmark when anybody ranks the movies. We're not going to ask you to do that, but what I'm going to ask you, is it in your top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier, and why? All right, I'll lead out because everyone's pausing. <laughs> um, I I don't like doing rankings generally because I – That's why I try to make I it think... as vague as possible for you, man. No, I, top, I, middle, I, or I appreciate that, <laughs> I really do. So I would say it's in. The, I would say it's in the top tier, um, but I would say it's kind of in the lower part of the top tier, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, and mostly because of the things that we've discussed here, in that they are defining um, a, a series and and a character and a style, and for you know, and, and, and really creating a universe. Really, you know. Um, for for a character, yeah, Mar- Marvel. Uh, it takes Marvel is, two movies to do that now. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And now you can kind of, you just immediately go, wow, look at this world that this person inhabits. This is fucking crazy. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, there is that love I have of it for that. But I, I think maybe in terms, I mean, there are, it's, a, it's an inexpensive film, however polished it is. And there are, you know, there are some cut corners and there are some things that don't maybe, um, you, you know, translate as well to a modern audience. And for that reason, it kind of like shrinks down a little bit. And I think that there are some more interesting, um, narratively interesting films that kind of like push up in my, in my top, um, in my top sphere. So it, it it's in there, but it's sort of it's teetering on mid tier. It's yeah. I, I think, I think all the Connery films are always going to be really up there for me because of their, just because of what the, the, the emotion um, that they evoke for me, you know, the feeling that they, they create for me. Um, okay. One vote for, I say top, top minus. Is that fair? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you that for me in the ranking, uh, the project that I did in 2020, which admittedly is not yet complete on my website because I haven't done the Daniel Craig Bonds. I did a big recap series of all the Bond films uh, for my podcast. We watched them in order and every week we had to rank them. So that was very difficult for me. I agree. It's really hard to do rankings. I love all the Bond films in different ways. Um, but Dr. No obviously is a a huge impact on me being the first and having the moments like Bond, James Bond and having the first uh, villain's lair and the first kind of character villain and the first Bond girl and all those things for me lift it into that top tier. So actually on my list it sits in number six position. But you have to understand that my my list is very much an emotional list. It's not just a practical like yes. here are the best, no, you know. Oh, of course, yeah. Are. But yeah. Uh, it, it, subsequently, I remember other movies coming in. I was like, oh, but I feel like I should rank this higher. But you know, Doctor No, maybe I should have ranked it lower. Or you know, <laughs> the, the the trouble with ranking when you're going in order is is you can't go back and you know, fix. So, uh, so yeah, I would say probably similar in the top tier, but on the lower side of it. Phil, are you going to join the cohort or are you going to break tradition here? Oh, I'm not. I think I like it more than either of my co-panelists ah. because it it's, it's a film that I, you know, if we just use the metric of which one do you pop in to, to watch most, it's really gotten a lot of play from me the last two years. It's, mm. it's colorful. It's exotic. It's sexy. It's horny. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh, and, and it's there's just sure. something so self-contained about it that it doesn't it doesn't get like lost in Act Two like a lot of Bond films tend to do, and we kind of hand wave that that sort of shortcoming away from so many of our Bond faves. This movie doesn't do that. It's a lean one. It's got my favorite Connery performance as Bond in it, um, and it's it's just getting a lot of uh, play time in the rotation lately. So I I would say it's Good. easily in the top five. Excellent. So three votes for top tier. Um, I honestly don't know if we are, well, we might have that a couple more times. We'll see in this series, but thanks Natalie, Phil and Ben, and we'll see other people next week for from Russia with love. Bye.